Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest this week is Christopher Skeet. He is a member of the National Assembly of Quebec for the Riding of St. Rose, a district in the northern part of the city of Laval. He also happens to be the parliamentary assistant to Quebec Premier Francois Legault for relations with English-speaking Quebecers, and very recently, he was appointed parliamentary assistant to the minister responsible for the fight against racism, a newly created government department. On this episode, we talk about some of the hottest political topics that have spurred much debate on the Hill, such as Bill 96, which proposes new amendments to Quebec's charter of the French language, Bill 21, which has been coined Quebec's secularism bill, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Christopher Skeet, thank you so much uh, for, for doing this. I appreciate it. I know that this week uh, is intensive session up in Quebec. You're finishing up this week. I know how hectic it is, so the fact that you're taking the time uh, is highly, highly appreciated. Always a pleasure to speak to your audience and the audiences in general. It's important to, to be out there and to be seen and heard. Good. Excellent. Uh, just before we get started, uh, how has this last year and a half been for you? I mean, it's been tough for everyone, but uh, how's it going for you, your family? How have you been uh, coping uh, with this uh, you know, challenging year? Uh, I have to say, uh, blessed. Um, I- I'm lucky. Um, I'm one of the lucky people who um, my kids, um, you know, there's some adaptation, but they're not struggling too, too much in school. Um, my daughter, my son are, are doing, are doing well, they need a little bit more help in the motivation department, but honestly, um, that's going well. My wife, who's a nurse, um, is, uh, is also doing well. Mental health is there. She, she's doing well. She's in good spirits. Um, and, and, and myself, I'm, I'm privileged to be uh, serving as a liaison to the English community for the premier. Uh, we're still working on files, important files. So still have the sense that I'm, I'm moving forward, even though we have this pandemic looming, we're still doing some really good stuff. So, uh, blessed really to, to, to have the opportunity to, uh, not have been sick, uh, to have kids that are healthy, to have a wife who's working, to have a job. Uh, I consider myself very fortunate. No, guaranteed, because it's taken a, it's taken a hit on a lot of people and a lot of industries. Obviously, like we've seen, you know, I have a lot of friends yeah. in the restaurant business that have to either close down or haven't yeah. seen any significant revenues in the, in over a year. It hasn't been easy. I have to tell you, uh, that's why I use the word blessed, because, um, you know, on, on the one side, I, 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 I feel very lucky to have what I have. But I know that for people uh, you know, in a wider society, there's been a lot of challenges, either losing a loved one, uh, not being able to see or hug or kiss a loved one, uh, being right. separated by family. Um, and yeah, businesses that are struggling. Uh, I have, you know, I, I had a, a meeting uh, with uh, a gym owner recently. He was just like, you know, how do I, how do I make this happen? How do I continue to survive? How do I continue feeding my kids? You know? So, uh, that's the way I use the word blessed, uh, right. because I know exactly how lucky I am and how difficult it's been. Are you happy with the way you guys managed uh, this whole pandemic? Was there something that you think maybe should have been done that you haven't or that you maybe overlooked or? Yeah. I, 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 would, I wouldn't say we've been perfect. I think uh, that would be the height of hubris to assume that we've been perfect. There's a lot of things that possibly uh, with hindsight that we could have done differently. For instance, I think the premier was uh, 
was right in acknowledging that, you know, when we came to power, we increased the budgets for, for PABs, the Pépose, the, the, the orderlies and, and senior homes. Um, and we added more budget and opened more positions, uh, but they weren't being filled because the salaries weren't high enough. I think in retrospect, uh, we could have offered higher salaries from the outset and, and, and really enticed people into the profession earlier. And then maybe, you know, the first wave would have been less painful. So, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, there's always things that you could uh, look and say that you could have done differently or you wish you could have done differently. But I mean, I think I think most Quebecers are really happy to have had this government in place to manage this this pandemic at this time. Right. Um Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the this first rookie mandate for you. you got elected for the first time in 2018. Uh, is this because you you had attempted also to get elected in previous years as well, right? In 2012, 2014, finally it happened for you in 2018. Was it everything that you expected more? I mean, how is this um, this uh, this new lifestyle? Yeah. Uh, and of course, I mean, the, 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 the first mandate hasn't yet finished. I mean, you're only three years into it, a little over three years. But I mean, uh, even those three years, sometimes it feels like an eternity, right? It does, uh, but in a good way. Uh, George, I studied political science in university. Uh, I love politics. I've always loved the art of politics. I've always loved Quebec politics. I've always thought uh, that we could do better. I think the, the sovereignty debate for the past 50 years has been really divisive for our society. And I'm happy that with the election of our government, we've moved beyond that. Um, I have to say, um, in a lot of ways, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And then again, in a lot of ways, is a complete surprise. Uh, an example of a surprise would be the pandemic. Uh, it would be uh, having a secretariat that I'm responsible for to manage uh, and, 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 you know, in, to be able to affect change and instill pride in the English community of being an Anglo-Quebecer. Uh, to be able to deliver on uh, the first ever creation of a ministry for racism. I mean, as a black man, that is a, a tremendous source of pride for me. Uh, so, you know, a lot of unexpected, but at the same time, uh, I had a good idea of what I was getting myself into all those years. Right. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the, the functions that you have, but for, for everyone listening or watching, just so we can set the, uh, set the stage a little bit, MA for uh, for St. Rose, it's a district in the northern part of Laval. You're the parliamentary assistant to the premier, uh, especially for relations with the English-speaking Quebecers. And you just recently were appointed uh, parliamentary assistant to the minister uh, responsible for the fight against racism, which is a new uh, position. Uh, I'm not sure which one to tackle first. Let, let's talk a little bit about the... <laughs> Very easy subjects. Let's just, uh, you know... <laughs> Yeah, just like that. Just a little conversation about them. Uh, no, like you said, I mean, they're, 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 they're heavy files, especially given the fact that like you said that there's been this historical, uh, historic um, kind of duality between the English and the French uh, communities in Quebec. Um, you are the point person for the government with respect to the English community. And your government has taken uh, decisions that many think are kind of countercurrent. Uh, has it been easy for you? Uh, I mean, has your government made it easy for you to do this job, especially with regards to the English community? I think, uh, you know, I think your question, George, is an interesting one because it's the question that we've been sort of struggling with for the past, past 50 years. But allow me to change our focus, change our prism, because, you know, one party or another has forced us to choose either or. Uh, we're either we're either all about separating and being a country and then forget everything else, everything that's Canada, or we're 100% Canada and, and Quebec is just like everything else. And I think we have to get out of that prism. 
what I'm about, what my government's about, and what I fight for is the fact that I think most Quebecers agree that Quebec is a special place and it's different in Canada and it's a, it's a unique, beautiful aspect of North America. And I think that's worth protecting. And one of the biggest things that's worth protecting is the fact that we, we speak French here, a little, a little island of French that brings a little taste of Europe into North America. I think that's special and I think that's worth protecting. Uh, but I don't put that in opposition to being proud to be a Canadian or to say that you can be a Quebecer and love everything that's Quebec and even believe that in a lot of ways Quebec is different and therefore should take measures to protect what makes it different. But that doesn't mean I'm any less Canadian or any less proud to be uh, a Canadian. So I, 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 I discard that, that, that false choice. I say I can be both. And for me, the CAQ represents what that means. On the one hand, taking active measures to protect French and what makes you know, Quebec special in North America. But at the same time, being the guy responsible for doubling the budget of the English Secretariat, investing in English community vitality, making sure that seniors who are elderly and speak English get services in their communities, making sure that English people who tend to have a higher unemployment rate get the services that they need to fully integrate into the Quebec economy, making learning French a right you know, we, we, we teach immigrants, we teach francophones French, but we don't teach the English community French. Why? Why? We need yeah. French to be successful here. So it's about, you know, discarding the, the, the obstacles that allow us to, that have taken away what it means to be Quebecer. And I think if there's one take in the past 50 years, it's that this whole divisive debate has forced choose between our home and our country. In fact, we deserve both. It's funny because we're in a very um, unique situation, and I agree with you. I, mean, I think it's very important to protect the French language. Uh, I, I'm a kid of, you know, Bill. I'm a Bill 101 child, right? I mean, and I'm very proud of it. Um, but we live in this very—I don't want to say strange, but it, it, it's definitely unique in the sense that we have an English community that, in generally, if you think of it, in North America has no danger of losing its language. I mean, it's the majority, uh, it's the language spoken to the majority of people in North America, yet in Quebec, they're a minority, while at the same time, they're living with another uh, uh, community who, in Quebec, they seem, well, I mean, in recent, uh, in recent years, we're seeing a decline, but in, in essence, I mean, French is still very much uh, a language spoken by the majority of the people, whether at home uh, or at work, but in North America, they are minority. So it's this weird situation that we're in where both groups actually feel uh, that they are being targeted. You know, bullseye, 100%. I say those exact words all the time. Think about how unique of a situation that is. You have a Quebec minority, Francophone minority in North America, saying, what does it mean for me to protect my minority but they represent the threat, the existential threat that I feel externally. Um, and when you think about it, it's, 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 it's beautiful and it's noble, George. Like, think about it. For the Franklins to say, no, we have a responsibility to our history and to the people who helped build Quebec to protect the vitality of this community. But at the same time, we have to take active measures to protect this beautifulness that is, that is this experience of being Quebec in, in, in North America. And uh, we do it sometimes with great difficulty, we do it sometimes with uh, with uh, a raucous and a little bit of uh, you know or lève le ton and uh, you know it gets kind of rowdy sometimes. But at the same token, I also think that all in all we do a really good job. And I think you express it very well. It's not about seeing language as a zero sum game like that. 
you know, for one to win, we have to take away from the other. It's about making sure that we recognize that A, French in North America will always be fragile, even in Quebec. Yet, we have an obligation to English vitality in our community, and we need to take steps to protect that vitality. So, so let's talk a little bit about the new bill that you're proposing. They're, they're calling it the new bill 101. Uh, officially, it's the it's bill 96. Uh, I haven't read it. It's obviously a, it's a heavy bill that will be uh, looked at in detail starting next session, I think. Um, but, you know, you look at the, the, the general points. I don't think it's that bad, to be honest with you. Uh, a lot of people are saying that it's much more symbolic than anything else, that it won't bring that much um to the stage uh do you agree with that i mean do you think that there's actually anything that will happen or change uh, th uh, through these uh, th uh through these amendments there have been successive court decisions that have weakened bill 101 over the years so one of the reasons uh, you know one of the answers to the question well why are we talking about this now it's twofold a uh for 15 years we've had reports by the oqlf that have gone unpublished previous governments have not publicized those reports either because it doesn't fit their narrative let's put it that way and so now we come to power and we see that there is slippage and that there are worrying reports and now of course we have an obligation to do those things uh i think it's very important for a guy like me who grew up in a very political environment where language was always political i think the best gift we can give ourselves is to remove politics from the language discourse. This bill proposes that. We're naming an independent commissioner whose role is gonna to be to be named by the National Assembly by 60% and to come up with objective, nonpartisan, non-political reports to tell us what the state of France is. So let's remove the politics. That's a big win, I think, for everybody. Another thing that we're doing, and this is another important thing, as I said in my introduction, we're giving access to French as a right. I think English-speaking Quebecers who want to work in the civil service but realize that their French written is not strong enough or who want to get better paying jobs but they're not able to you know, get access to French after they leave school, uh, having French courses as a right is a big win for the community. It'll make them more functional in our society and it also protects French. So that's the kind of win-win solutions that I think we need to build upon going forward. But there's other good stuff for the English community, too, in this law. For instance, bilingual status. For the longest time, Quebec government, the Quebec government had the, 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 a law that says that if you have 50% of your population that speaks English, you're allowed to be a bilingual municipality. Well, what happens when it dips below that? Some municipalities are well below the 50% mark. It's always like a hot potato for the province. Well, what we've done, we said, you know what? You guys are the owners of your cities. You guys are city councilors. So you decide what's good for you. That's a win for municipal autonomy. These cities yeah, will now have the ability to do that. Yeah, but on that on that subject, I kind of agree with the people that are saying that it's much more symbolic because you're making a step to say that we have to beef up the uh, um, the, the policy on protecting the French language. There's the, the there's the English uh, the bilingual status of the municipalities that you're that you're putting into question. But at the, at the same time, you're, you're, you're leaving it up to the municipalities to choose instead of the government stepping up and saying, look, this is the law. You're below 50 percent. We're, we're removing the bilingual status. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really change anything because the municipalities, obviously, they're not. I mean, it's it's strange for me to think of any municipality that's going to that, that's going to come out and say, OK, yeah, we'll lose the bilingual status. I mean, they're all going to pass resolutions in their municipal councils to kind of maintain it. No, I think most probably will. But then again, they'll have to own that decision. And I, I, that's one of the things that historically 
this is something that Quebec has taken the lead on when in fact, I think that decision belongs more locally. And so it's a win for local autonomy. And I think that goes beyond symbolism. I think it's important for, for municipalities, have their city councillors pass a resolution, take the heat, sure, but also take ownership of that and affirming what their citizens locally are saying. I think that's an important step. Uh, you're talking about giving uh, the English community more uh, more room and to to respect a little bit uh, the fact that they're allowed to be speaking English. Um, there's there's something that I read, and I'm not sure because I haven't read the the bill in, in its entirety. Um, to the effect that the government communications will only be done in in French. How do you how do you convince the English community that? they'll still be able to be served if the communications coming from the government will be only done in French. And especially with the new immigrants, I, I read somewhere that they will only be available in English for the first six months, assuming that after the six months that they're what, fluently uh, francophones. So let's separate the, the, the question because it's a complex question and one that I spent a lot of time uh, on. Uh, the first question is, uh, do English speaking Quebecers now who are getting their documents in English, will that change? The, the answer is no. Individuals receiving documents now in English, um, be they English uh, speakers or persons who are considered a la fun, they're all gonna, if they're currently getting their documents in English, that's not gonna change. Those people are grandfathered, everyone gets their English documents. Here's the change. If you're an English speaking Quebecer and you went to English school or you went to English high, uh, college, or not college, but uh, elementary school or high school, then you're considered an English-speaking Quebecer. You will always have the right to receive communications from the Quebec government uh, in, in English or in French, okay? But then the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what do we do with people who choose Quebec for immigration? Now, what we've noticed is, and this is a very important indicator for the future of French. What we notice is, for instance, an immigrant who goes to British Columbia, okay? They'll, they'll move to Canada and the conversion, the, the language conversion from whatever language they spoke to English, 99%. So that means that person integrates into Canadian society, into English language, and is able to be functional in their province because they master the local language and are able to be successful. In Quebec, the transfer, the language transfer to French is 45%. Uh, sorry, 55%. It's 45% that go to English. So what we're saying is, can you really be successful in Quebec? And I think this is the answer that this is the question I'm asking your audience. Do you think you can really be successful in Quebec if you if you don't master French? And I, I believe the answer is no. So what we're trying to do there is we're trying to increase that, that percentage, that language transference to make sure that it's a bit higher, to make sure that people who choose Quebec choose to live in French in order to assure their success and to for them to integrate better into society. But that's what's changing. But do you believe that new immigrants within six months will fully understand the French language in order to get the documentation only in French? So we believe that by offering free, universal, accessible French courses, by choosing persons based on their uh, regional preferences, because don't forget, we also proposed last year a new uh, immigration law where we're trying to regionalize immigration. I don't think it's a, 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 it's a, a, it's an indicator for success for everybody to congregate in Montreal. I think we need immigrants even in the regions. So if you're an immigrant from Brazil and you move to Saguenay and you're a welder, because uh, we chose you because we need welders in Saguenay, and 
you're you move to the Saguenay region and yeah, you might have English as your second language after Portuguese and French as your third. I think if you're living in Saguenay after six months of working in a job with colleagues, probably falling in love with a local Saguenayan, I believe that you're going to learn French. And of course, if you don't, you always have access to those French classes that are there to help you. And we're also offering French classes at work for those new immigrants. So I think at some point we got to cut the umbilical cord. We think six months is a good enough time. Yeah. Look, I'll be honest with you because I worked with a lot of community groups, uh, you know, you know, the last 11, 12 years when I, when I was in politics, the, the main priority isn't necessarily to learn the language. They come here, they want to live, they want to get to work, they want to send their kids to school, they want to just, you know, start their new life. Uh, I'm not so sure that the priority is let me learn the French language. And I think that's where maybe something has failed along the lines because it kind of gets it, it kind of gets brushed uh, brushed off. I, I I will tell you honestly, if you send a letter in French to my family, to my parents, uh, it won't go necessarily to the garbage, but guaranteed I'm getting a call. Come over. We got a letter. Come and read it to us. <laughs> and they've been here for over 50 years. Um, mind you, maybe the times were different back then. Maybe they were much more focused on working back then and doing whatever they had to do. Maybe today things are different. Maybe there is a, a, a wider interest in learning the language. I don't know that for a fact. But it just seems to me that when a new immigrant comes here with his or her family, the priority is let me just get to work. Let me just make things work. I don't think language is kind of there at the forefront. I need to learn French. I think I think uh, a very, very interesting point. There's two things that changed since your parents. Uh, firstly, the quiet revolution. I know that I, in Shamadi, where I grew up, a lot of my friends were of Greek origin, and a lot of their parents came to Quebec around the 60s and 70s. Quiet revolution is a big deal, not to be underestimated, because... Before the Quiet Revolution, you can come to Quebec and expect to speak English. Okay, yeah. so that's a bit of a transformation that happened. But the second big one is also the type of jobs, uh, the labor markets changed. So uh, the question that you need to ask yourself, and let me use an exaggerated example to try and put you into perspective: Do you think that it's reasonable for a person to choose to, lo- to, to, to live in Sweden and to not learn Swedish, and then to say to yourself, "Gee, am I putting all the chances on my side to be successful?" No, I think I think if you want to be successful in a knowledge economy, you have to speak the local language. Absolutely. And I think and that, that, that's basically the point that I'm making. So I think there's been a shift in the labor market and I think times have changed since your parents. So I think I, I think you really need to be you need to have a, 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 a basic understanding of the language to be successful. I think I think that's the best way we can help yeah. our immigrants. I, to get, I agree. Integrate. I agree 100 percent. I think that today, if you're planning on living the rest of your life in Quebec, you are disadvantaged by not knowing uh, or learning the French language. Um, but on the other on the flip side, and I want to I, I want to bring you to um, to the section in Bill 96 that is going to deal with the English Egypts. A lot of youngsters today don't really see themselves living for the rest of their lives in Quebec. And if they are, I mean, they probably assume at some point or another, they're looking outward internationally, across Canada, maybe U.S. So there, uh, you know, the English language is, you know, uh, becomes very um, attractive. Uh, we've known in the past, and it's come out in the news all the time, that there's more and more francophones like like myself. I went to elementary and high school in French. Uh, I actually went to Egypt in French as well, but a lot of the youngsters that uh, move on to that level of education decide to go to English so that they can perfect that language, not because necessarily they, 
you know, they're thinking I'm not going to stay in Quebec, but the possibility of opening that door internationally is much more appealing today than it was 30, 40 years ago, where naturally you would just stay here. I mean, we're living in a much more globalized uh, society, so it only makes sense. And I think we should encourage the Francophones here to learn the English language as well. But now you're putting kind of, you know, you're, you're putting up a wall there, uh, kind of blocking access to the French uh, speaking community of accessing the uh, the English Seagyps. Uh, so let me explain what it is what we're doing. Uh, Section 23 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees that English or minority language uh, peoples have access to higher education or education in their language. So the English Seagyps are created actually to serve the English population in priority. Okay. Now, of course, there's not enough uh, Anglophones to go to these these CJEPs. So, of course, we open it up to everybody else. And besides, Bill 101 doesn't apply to CJEPs. So, you know, it, it, anybody who wants to go there can go. This is the problem that we're having, though. Because of the limited number of English institutions, uh, a large number of Francophones, high-performing Francophones, are choosing to study in English. And that's sort of squeezing the English-speaking Quebecers out of their own network. Uh, I was a, let's put it nicely, an average student. Uh, if, with my with my grades, I think I had a 73% average coming out of high school. There's no way I would have gotten into a CJEP today because I'd be competing with Francophones to get in there. Um, and I, I mean, I, I don't mean to imply that the world would be better served with me in it, but I don't think Quebec wins if, if Christopher Skeet never graduates university or college. Um, and how many are there out there right now like that? So what we're doing with our bill is we're correcting that. We're giving the English community first kick at the can to make sure that we're actually, the English network is actually serving the English population. But on the flip side, um, Francophones can still access it. Now, to answer your question more directly, I think we have to separate the question of what's the purpose of the English CJEP and what, how good of a job are we doing at teaching our kids different languages? On the one side, I went to English uh, university and then I did my master's in French because to put it mildly, the French that I learned in elementary and high school was inadequate, insufficient, and deficient. It did not prepare me to be successful in Quebec, even though it's a Quebec diploma. On the other side, French elementary, French high schools are not doing a good job of teaching English to our, to our French-speaking population, which is why some of them feel the strong pressing need to go get better education in the English sector. So I think we need to take a step back and recognize the failings of those two uh, systems, as opposed to opening it up to the CJEP level. I think what a Francophone student choosing to study at Dawson is actually saying is, well, you know, my level of French is not adequate, my level of English is not adequate, I'm going to finish the CJEP. But now, in starting, there's a problem. The first problem is, why is your English bad? It shouldn't be. We should well, be teaching. Well, that, well, that's a good, well, that's a good point. Why not attack the problem at its source uh, rather than limiting the English CJEPs to the enrollment that they could have because you are putting a cap. So, I mean, you could have, you could have very well said, look, we want to prioritize uh, English uh, Quebecers in the CJEPs, but we're not going to uh, implement a, a cap in their enrollment. That way, if there's any Francophones that want to attend, they're more than welcome to do it. Basically, nothing will change from what it was before. But you bring up an excellent point. Why not attack the problem at its source? Well, I mean, that's it, what we are doing. In recent years, uh, for instance, in previous governments, they lowered it from grade four to grade to kindergarten. The learning of French. Where there's a after, now that we've we've sort of at the tail end of the sovereignty movement, at the tail end of the Quiet Revolution, we sort of realize. Well, wait a minute. English isn't the enemy. English is the world is the world. You know, language is the business language of the world. We have to sort of 
find a way to protect our French, yet at the same time teach our kids English. So that's the kind of cheminement that we need to have. And again, ça s'inscrit in the in the in the let's stop seeing one versus the other. On an individual level, bilingualism is an is an amazing asset that needs to be encouraged. But in terms of our langue commune, the normalcy of Quebec is needs to be French if we want to preserve it for 400 years, because we've had it for 400 years, if we want to protect it for the next 400 years. Otherwise, listen, George, it's very simple. If we do nothing, Quebec becomes the Louisiana. You know, French becomes a little cute little thing with cute little names, and it becomes a historical memory. Oh, and it's definitely, you know, and, and I think we definitely have an obligation to protect that. But I, I'm just coming back to what you said before about removing politics from the equation. Mm-hmm. And something tells me inside that if there were a government that would come out tomorrow and say, look, we're imposing bilingualism across the board. You go to French school, you go to English school, you will learn both English and French. I have a feeling that that would be a political disaster for that government. Well, I'll tell you why it would be. And I think that's the essence of your question. Why is it that, why don't we just institute institute official bilingualism in Quebec? Because even in Quebec, French is fragile. The result of bilingualism is actually English. If you look at New Brunswick, where they have an actual uh, bilingual, the only actual bilingual yeah. province in the country, their transition rate for immigrants is over 80%. Actually, sorry, it's over 90%. So most people, immigrants who go to New Brunswick, a bilingual place, even if they speak French, they'll transition to English. So I believe if you look at it like that, you really have to recognize, and this is where it's important, and you're seeing some work being done on the federal level there with the Official Languages Act. It's recognizing that English and French are not equal. They're both important. They're both critical. They're part of our, our DNA, but they're not equal in their in their. And recognizing that French is fragile, even in Quebec, means recognizing that if you institute bilingualism, what you're doing is instituting English, which is what we had before the Quiet Revolution. If you look back in time, Quebec was bilingual. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you had French, 90% of the people spoke French and uh, English had the economic power. But really, it was to the detriment of of, of French and Francophones because Francophones were sending their kids to English school to be successful and French was on its way to disappearing. So I'm not sure that that solves the problem. Yeah, but on an institutional level, it was different. I mean, French wasn't imposed for education like it is today. So, I mean, you would keep that, right? I mean, I'm born from immigrant parents. I would have to go to a French school like I did, actually. But we learned English equally. I mean, it was a, it was a trilingual school that I went to. We learned Greek as well. But, I mean, I came out there speaking fluently all three languages. Maybe others won't have that chance. But, I mean, if we can come out of those institutions speaking fluently both languages, you don't necessarily lose the essence of your French. I would have to disagree. Um, and I, I think on this, intelligent people can disagree. Uh, I, think, I, I think you could find data on both sides. But I would say that history has taught us that the, the, the inequality of power between English and French in, in North America is such that a, a policy of official bilingualism would, would, would result in assimilation of the French into English. Right, right. Uh, what do you do with uh, these um, English CGIPs that have come out uh, against these positions? I, I, I'm assuming that as the, the point man for the government with the English-speaking communities, you're, you're, you're still in touch with them. I mean, what is, a, what is the word on the ground there coming? And there's also the, uh, the, the Quebec Community Group's uh, network with uh, Marlene Jennings that has also been very critical uh, on, on this bill. Um, where are we with that? Which one do you want me to answer first? 
Oh, whichever one you want. Okay, let's take CJEPS. Um, I, well, this is a global answer, and then I'll take CJEPS and and and, and uh, opponents of the bill. Um, I think whenever we there's kind of like you know there's scar tissue when we talk about language issues in Quebec. So uh, a lot of the fear that I'm hearing really isn't fact based. A lot of it is perception of of bad. Uh, so people are so, sort of kind of scarred still from Bill 101, from the sovereignist movement, from referendums. I think so when we talk about language, it's always associated to something very fearful. So and then combine that, of course, with change, the fact that they don't really know what the CAQ is all about because it's kind of a new party. So all that comes into an unknown. What does it mean? And I think unknown causes fear. Uh, so that's my global statement. Then, of course, you get the reactions. I heard two things from the English CJEPs. Uh, some of them said, uh, well, we're going to disappear in five years. And that's that's a as a statement. Okay, well, they're going to disappear. And then, of course, the next day, I also heard them say, uh, well, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to force Francophones out of province because it's going to be so full in our, in our colleges. Uh, obviously, both answers can't be true. Um, uh, I think what we're, what we're saying is English CJEPs should be in priority for the English-speaking population because it's their institution. And of course, by capping the numbers, but leaving them as is, don't forget, 17.5% uh, of spaces in CJEPs right now go to the English sector, even though they represent about 10%. So we're still almost at double the amount of space. Like it's, you know, on est loin, uh, we're far from having a, uh, an access issue. Um, now, as far as uh, groups that oppose uh, the bill, a lot of that, I think, is fear. I think a lot of that is is um, misunderstanding. Uh, there are some genuine concerns that need to be addressed, but really, um, I'm I, I haven't. The only thing I've heard some of these groups say is their concerns about. Um, I don't know if you're hearing me there. I, I'm getting a call yeah. at the same time. Yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. Um, the only thing that I've heard from these groups is um, is concern about the, the constitutional stuff, like uh, the notwithstanding clause or inserting the fact that Quebec is a nation in the constitution. But really, you know, I took great pains to make sure that a lot of the things in this law did not affect the English community, to make sure that we were largely exempt from the issues or we were given an advantage, such as learning French or having first take up the can for our CGEPs. But it's interesting you mentioned the constitutional things. And that's why I said that on the onset, it seems that it's much more symbolic because the federal government has already acknowledged Quebec as a distinct nation. So the fact that, you know, uh, Quebec will be able to change the constitution into uh, into inscribing that it's a distinct nation, I don't think it would get much uh, objection uh, from uh, from the federal government. However, uh, changing Quebec's uh, stance to, ha to, to, to having one official language, that, however, needs the approval of Ottawa, no? Uh, we don't believe so. Uh, for, for the benefit of your listeners, uh, the Constitution of 1867 has three parts. Uh, one part talks about provincial jurisdictions, the other part talks about federal jurisdictions, and the other one uh, talks about shared jurisdictions. What we've done in our bill, if we're, we're changing the part that touches us as a province, the Quebec part, and we're inscribing in there things that belong to us. Uh, it's been done in the past. For instance, when we abolished the Senate for Quebec, we unilaterally changed that in there um, and, and made the change on our own, just like uh, the federal government on its own without asking anybody changed uh, some pension information about uh, senators for themselves on their own. So when, when you're touching your own part, you don't really need 
to have consensus. And as you said, quite accurately, I think most people would agree, and it's already been recognized by the parliament, that Quebec is a nation and that people recognize that in Quebec, yeah, but that across the board, I don't think there's any objection to that. Uh, but I do know there's Article 133 in the in the charter. It stipulates that the use of both languages are mandatory, especially in drafting uh, archives, minutes, and other specific journals in Quebec Parliament, as well as during court proceedings or any judicial documentation. I'm, t- I'm taking this uh, direct quote there. Um, so it does appear that there are provisions in the constitutions for provinces to... Uh, to unilaterally amend their uh, their constitution uh, with respect to the to, to it being recognized as a nation, there's no doubt. But then there's Article 43 that also requires the approval of Ottawa for any modifications related to the use of languages in the province. I think that's where you may come to uh, to a little uh, uh, where you may have an issue. I, I don't know. I mean, and is that why you're invoking the uh, Article 33 there, the notwithstanding clause, just to make it go through? So let's let's talk about that because I think we're at the the crux of the issue. The idea here is to say, if you're an English speaker, will you still have access to a, a court proceeding in your language? The answer is yes. So that that won't affect your fundamental rights as a person to retain uh, to get you know justice in English or to be served in English uh, when you go to a hospital. We haven't amended the 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 healthcare act in that way. So what we're saying is Quebec is a, a, you know there are nine unilingual provinces in Quebec and Quebec is one of them. And I think that's the way that you should look at that 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 notion. The fact that in Alberta, there's one language, it's English. And yeah, we offer French services and we protect your rights. If you need a court case, you'll wait a long time, but you'll get it in French eventually. Uh, in Quebec, uh, we actually offer very good services to in both languages. So that's what we're essentially saying is that ici au Québec, ça se passe en français. But of course, in with respect to uh, the English language, just like the preamble says in Bill 101, people forget that. But the preamble of Bill 101 actually stipulates the amazing contribution of English speaking Quebecers and the importance of protecting their rights. What about not imposing bilingualism to uh, to uh, to judges at the Superior Court here in Quebec? Yeah, that was uh, something that that uh, got a lot of media attention. I think the what was lost in that debate was. Uh, let me ask you a question, right? Since we're we're, we're having an exchange, um, is it normal in Quebec for a frank a unilingual francophone to be denied employment in Quebec? No, of course not. Yeah, and I think once you say that, then then of course now of course there are market reasons why a person would not be, for instance, if a company has clients in the U.S., uh, I can't hire a unilingual francophone. But, okay, yeah, but you're looking at an exception there. Okay, right, but I'm saying. A unilingual francophone in Quebec should be able to gain sustainable employment on the regular. Uh, and that applies also to lawyers who want to become judges. So instead of saying, well, okay, the judge has to be bilingual. Okay, why? It, it, does the judge have to be bilingual in Montreal? Yes. Does the person have to be bilingual to be a, a ticket a ticket judge, in a municipal judge in, in the gas bay? Probably not. So it's removing this notion of systemic bilingualism, again, because we're trying to move away from that, to say, well, wait a minute, if you're a unilingual lawyer in Cote-Nord, I'm not sure that bilingualism is a prerequisite. That's what that debate was all about. And I think, I, you know, again, intelligent people can disagree, but I, don't, I, I think that it's normal to say bilingualism is required when it really is required, not as a prima facie obligation of every competition that's being done for judges. Right. Uh, you've been taking a lot of heat about using the the notwithstanding clause almost 
unilaterally. I mean, you used it for the the, the secular bill that was contested uh, by uh, by some English groups as well, especially the MSB, uh, which the courts actually gave them the right. And your government is actually appealing uh, that that decision. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, if, if if the bills were drawn up in a way where there is no problem, why even use uh, the the notwithstanding clause? You're, you're being you're being yeah. you're being criticized as though you're using that because you know that it infringes uh, upon individual rights and freedoms. Yeah, it's an amazing discussion because uh, let's put a little context around it, George. So there's the unilateral repatriation of the 1982 Constitution uh, without Quebec's permission. So Quebec is subjugated against its will to a constitution it did not sign. Now, within that constitution, there are rules and there are processes that tell us what we can and can't do. And Quebec, against its will, is bound by it. And there are decisions that go against Quebec all the time that just, that just you know, that bother Quebec. But we have to live with it because we're subject to a constitution, even though we didn't sign it. And there's a provision in that constitution that says, well, you know, in certain circumstances, uh, provinces in the pursuit of parliamentary supremacy, as opposed to a government of judges, having actual people who are elected to, to make decisions for society, make changes, governments may use the notwithstanding clause to opt out. And then those same people who subject Quebec to this, to this charter say, well, you can't do that, it's not constitutional. Well, I'm sorry. I disagree. You can agree or not with what we're doing. You can agree or not with the policy, but you cannot have it both ways. You cannot, on the one hand, subject Quebec to this constitution against its will. And then when Quebec's like, well, you know what? For the one time it's going to suit my needs, I'm going to use it. Say, well, you can't do that. So that's how I feel about that debate. I think it's a fake debate because really what it boils down to is um, there's a problem that Quebec didn't sign that constitution. And it's a problem that 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 we're subject to it against our will but at the same token we will use the tools in there to protect what makes quebec special in north america right um let's uh, let's move on i know you got to go soon but um i want to talk a little bit about the the, the new uh, the new appointment you got as a um, parliamentary assistant to the minister responsible for the fight against uh, terrorism this is a new position that racism was racism i'm not fighting i'm not fighting terror uh, terrorism. I said terrorism. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, thanks for the correction there. No. Uh, so yeah, this is this is a this is a new department. Um, th- there's been look. I mean, you're you're in a position where you're in government for for sure. You're going to get criticized, and it's only to be expected. Uh, the first off, they criticized you for appointing a white man. Obviously, they don't they don't know Benoit Charette like they should. I think uh, you know, I know the guy personally, so I think he's he's very well fit for that position. Um, just because you know the person wasn't a person of color. I, I mean, it's it's in my opinion, it's a useless debate. Um, the, the question that I have for you is how does the government see the need to create this department but hasn't yet recognized the, the, that there's systemic racism uh, despite all the, you know, all the evidence that we've been getting, especially in recent times? So uh, there are two questions there. I'm gonna, I, I really want to speak about the, the, the really poor job people have of explaining to me why you have to be um, uh, colored to be responsible for racism, because in any yeah. other cir- in any other circumstance, 
saying to someone, you can't get a job unless you're this is called racism. So je débarque. Yeah. Um, and it, that, that angered me because Benoit, you're right, is amazingly qualified. When they told me who the minister was, who the minister was going to be, I guessed Benoit because that's how good he is. So okay. anyways. Anyone that knows him knows that the, he, he knows he, that he's the perfect man okay. for the job. Uh, that being said, uh, let's move on to systemic racism. I'm of two minds about that. Uh, first off, systemic racism is it, it, it implies that. Well, first of all, it's not a it's, there's no one has consensus not everyone knows like you. Everyone knows what racism means. Systemic means a million different things to a million different people. Um, and there isn't really a consensus about whether or not it does exist. If it does exist, there isn't a consensus about what it means and how deep it goes. And some people even say, well, because it's systemic, just burn the whole thing to the ground and start over. So I, I think systemic poisons the debate and removes consensus from a very important issue. The issue being fighting racism, where we all agree. We all agree that being pulled over for driving while black, not good. For being excluded from a job based on your color, not good. We all agree on that. So why not focus on that instead of the academic and philosophical debate that is systemic racism? Um, and in a recent report in the UK, they had a, they had a whole session where they looked at the question. They too, they too said, you know what, systemic, uh, who knows? Let, we'll let the philosophers and the theorists decide about that. We're going to fight racism. That's what we've chosen to do. I think it's the right thing to do because I'd rather have 99% of people fighting racism with me than have 40% of people fighting systemic racism. Because look, Christopher, I'm going to ask you a question. And I understand from your position, you probably won't be able to answer directly. Uh, you've only been a government for about three years. I was there for over 11 years. There, there must be a reason why there isn't more people that look like you or that have the same or a similar family name like mine that aren't in, in the public service or they're not in your ministry or in the departments. There, I mean, there's a very limited number uh, uh, of us involved in these institutional positions. And you've probably seen it. I mean, I don't know if you have or not, but and maybe you haven't asked yourself that question. Maybe in time you will, but I've seen it. I, and I've always wondered uh, about it. Now, is it racism necessarily? I mean, I don't want to, you know, uh, jump to conclusions, but at some point um, it, it does start to get a little too obvious. Let me give you, I, uh, let me tell you what I think about that. Okay. One of the measures and the recommendations that we made in our report was to have, Every um, every um, board have at least one visible minority on the board, um, and uh, every so every public you know conseil d'administration is going to have at least one visible minority in it, and because this is how it works in a conseil d'administration, you're sitting at the table. Gee whiz, we need an accountant. Ah, well, no, I know an accountant. Um, Jean, I went to school with Jean. He's a great accountant and works at this company. Uh, I can give him a call. I'm sure he's available. And uh, yeah, okay, well, great. Get him in here. He'll help us with accounting. And then there you go. The, the spot is filled. Now, the problem is when it's you and your buds from the same school, all you're doing is reinforcing a cycle that perpetuates the same, the same thing. When you add a variable like a guy who's not from, you know, 
a person who's completely outside that circle, not only are you improving, this is what the data tells us, not only are you improving the decisions and the perspectives, much the same way that we saw when we added women to boards, um, then you start to see different decisions, but also diversification of, hey, I know a guy. Yeah, I went to school with a guy. So now you have this black person or this native person say, hey, wait a minute, I know a guy. He's really good and he helped me with this problem. Well, hey, I know you. If you say he's good, bring him on in. There's a there's an effect of or an effet de levier that happens when you expand people's network. I think of it a lot as human nature. We you know qu'est-ce qui se ressemble se ressemble, and I think what you have to do is expose people to that diversity uh, in order to affect the real change. Now sometimes people need a push, right? So that's why we're saying no. Introduce somebody in your boards now. Uh, inform people of color of their rights when they're being discriminated against for, for, for apartments because they don't know their rights or they don't trust the system. So is it the system that is beyond repair or is there institutional distrust? Yes, there's, this is, there's a lot of institutional distrust. There's a, like, if you tell a black person in Montreal North, oh, did you know that you can complain to the cops? Bah, I'm not gonna complain to the cops. They're all the same. So how are we even gonna get the change? And then of course, how am I gonna recruit somebody from that community? So there's a lot of reasons why we don't have diversity in various places. I think it's simplistic to say, well, you know, a pox on all your houses is just a racist box and it doesn't work. I think we need to be smarter than that and we need to tackle the issues differently. And if you look at our report with the 25 recommendations, we're actually hitting various irritants head on to make sure that we can try to break down those barriers. How, how are you going to make this happen? Like the top things on the agenda right now, uh, what are they and uh, how are we looking to fix them? So, uh, for instance, one of the big ones is naming a minister. There, this never existed before, right? So now we have a minister responsible for that. And there's going to be a civil service whose job it is to make sure that other government departments know what's going on. Now, that's a big deal, George, because as you know from having served in government, that when you when you want to do like a rule change or a law change, you have to submit it and all the ministries get to comment on it. Well, now this ministry for racism is going to say, hey, wait a minute. This here is going to have a negative impact on this community, that community. Oh, shoot. We didn't know. Well, now, you know, make the change. And just having that system in place will have dramatic effects on the internal machinations. I've seen it with the English community. Just by being at the table, we're able to comment on important things that affect the English community before they become law. And an example is Bill NE6. Well, wait a minute. Do you think about CJEPs? We have a problem now. People are being denied access to their own network. Let's fix that. So having a presence goes a long way to making that a big change. Another thing, like I said just now, was uh, trust issues. You know, Did you know that la déontologie policière? Did you know that there's a mechanism for complaints? Did you know that it's actually a pretty good system? Okay, well, now you know this is the process to make a complaint. Did you know that um, that um, if you're denied an apartment, that that goes against your human rights and you can actually get a free lawyer that'll take the case to court for you and you can win money? Benoit won a case, took a long time, but he knew he, he, knew he had a recourse and was able to get justice. These types of things go a long way, not only to improving institutional trust and therefore a happier population, a more engaged and civically minded population, but also they'll fix a lot of these injustices. Because when a when a when a tenant you know complains for you you know against you for being racist, the next time you're going to be like, hey, you know what? I'm not I'm not playing in that film anymore. I'm going to make sure that I'm that I'm that I'm legit in the way that I do things. 
Right. So you're, you're changing society on both ends. You're empowering people and you're also creating a dissuasive effect on the other side. I think that's how you fight racism. Let me ask you a personal question because there's not that many visible, uh, uh, there's not many that many colored people in the, in the, in the CAG government. There's you and there's Nadzin uh, 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 Giraud. Uh, was it at all uh, uncomfortable for you Uh, uncomfortable for you to, to, to have that discussion when this whole bubble around systemic racism broke, like a, when was it last year with the whole events around the George Floyd incident in the U.S.? I'm sure you, the, the, you know, the caucus sat around and you had that discussion. Was it a lot uncomfortable for you or your, your, your colleague to, to, to be the only people in the caucus and to have that discussion? Did you notice any behaviors or anything going on that people were kind of oblivious to certain realities? You've come out publicly said that you've been subjected to, uh, to racism while growing up uh, here in Quebec. And it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I have and I'm white. So, uh, I mean, we've seen it. We've lived through it. Uh, was there any discomfort uh, in that sense? Before I answer, let's take a step back because I think we have to acknowledge the historic aspect of the 42nd legislature that we have in Quebec. We have two black members in the Liberals and we have three black members in government. That's the first time in history that we have three black members at the same time sitting on in government. Uh, Lionel Carman. Oh, yeah, Lionel. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Sorry. And two of which are ministers. That's also yeah. a big deal. Not right. Not, Not the token racism ministry. No, they're doing actual stuff. Nadine Giraud is the face of Quebec internationally. That's a big deal to have a black woman as the face of Quebec. And we have a health minister who's also a doctor who's, who's sitting there as a black man doing his thing in health. And of course, me uh, with the English community, uh, parliamentary assistant to the premier. I mean, that's historic. We have a leader of the opposition who's a black woman. Yeah. And we also have two very dark Latinos on other parties as well. So I think I think we have to you know, take a step back and recognize the ground that we've covered and say, you know what, things are not where they should be, but they're not all bad either. There's a lot of progress being done. And this legislature, we have a lot to be proud of. Now, the next thing uh, to say is, did I feel discomfort? Well, no. My party, uh, at its foundation, if you'll recall, had Dominique Anglade as its president, and I was elected its first uh, vice president. So we've always had a history of, 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 of being open to diversity. And uh, I remember when, when Lionel Carman approached me and he said, listen, Chris, I'm, I'm thinking about asking you to join our committee. I said, well, you know, I said, that's great. I said, but I'm not going to sit on a committee and, and, and look black people in the eye and tell them that I'm going to help fix this problem and then come up with some token report that's going to be sitting on a shelf. I said, I, I, as a black man, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be using that way. And I still remember the look that Lionel gave me. Lionel looked at me and he's like, man, you know, you know, I'm going to do this for nothing. I'm doing it for something. And I understood there was like a bro moment there where we looked at each other and said, I recognize the historic rendezvous that we have. I'm not going to mess it up. And of course, uh, I think our recommendations show that we're serious about it and we're already putting it into, uh, into action. Fantastic. Very quickly, just before we let go, uh, some thoughts last week. It was a tough blow for uh, for the government. The, the ethics commissioner uh, uh, kind of uh, demanded that uh, Pierre Fitzgibbon step down, uh, which happened. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's no surprise. It's a huge blow to the to, to the ministerial caucus. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's a tough question, right? Because, you know, uh, I own a business and uh, it's not as, as big or successful as, as his business. I wonder, you know, uh, he tried to liquidate his companies. He had 13, he liquidated 11. The other two, he's not being able to find buyers in the COVID era. Um, you know, is Quebec better served by his absence? 
you know, it's a tough one. I think, um, I think we have to look at the ethics rules to get a sense of whether or not they're, they're adaptable to particular situations. There's got to be, there's got, there's got to be something wrong with a system that excludes Pierre Fitzgibbon from serving Quebecers. Yet at the same time, there's got to be a way to reassure Quebecers that decisions are being made with the best interest of Quebecers. There's got to be a way to do both. And I think, um, I think we have to find that way. We owe it to Quebecers to have the best people on the ice. Yeah. Uh, Christopher, thank you so much. I don't want to take up more of your time. I know you're headed into a very busy week up uh, on the hill there. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate the invite, George. Thanks for having me. Have a good end of session, buddy. Bye. Take care.